Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're looking at Lovecraft's classic weird tale, The Dunwich Horror. But before we get into all that good stuff, Happy New Year everyone. Whoop whoop. Yes, Happy New Year everybody, it's 2019, and what are the good friends looking forward to in this glorious new year? Besides the sweet release of death. Um, well, it's a year closer, Scott. Yes. Yeah, we can all celebrate that. Well, one of the things I'm looking forward to, I would say, is Necronomicon, the convention in Providence in August of this year. We're all hoping to be there together once more. Lots of uh, Call of Cthulhu, lots of authors, lots of artwork, lots of podcasters. Uh, it'd be a great time. Yeah, what makes Necronomicon really special is the fact that, unlike all the other events we go to, it's not just a gaming convention. I mean, as much as I love gaming conventions and hanging out with other people who do games in various forms, Necronomicon is mostly a literary convention, and there are so many of my favourite writers who go there. There's all sorts of interesting seminars. I don't know about you two, but I, I almost find the gaming there to be an intrusion. <laughs> I, I, I go along for the rest of this stuff. Well, this year I'm hoping to stay till the Sunday night, pertinent to our topic today, because they have a showing of the 1970 film The Dunwich Horror, but they entitle it The Dunwich Horror Picture Show, with props and special effects, actual on-stage stuff. And, with and the, audience the, participation. And audience yeah. participation, yes, yes. Um, I'm a big fan of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, big fan of The Dunwich Horror. Combined, what more can you want? So, so you finish up the evening by summoning Yogg-Sothoth? Let's hope so. Well, mine won't top that. I'm actually looking forward to an event coming up in only a couple of weeks now. Contingency. Up in sunny Hunstanton. That should be good. Yeah, it'll be fucking cold, but it'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> You'll be in your lodge running games for yeah. lots of people. If there's anything like the contingency last time, I think I'll only step outside of my lodge maybe twice in the whole event. <laughs> <laughs> That's gaming. Oh, yes. I mean, obviously, aside from the conventions we've discussed, I, the thing I suppose I'm looking forward to the most in, in 2019 is finally being finished writing up a poison tree, because we've been working on this thing for a long time. It's yeah, been just, five uh, years now. I'm still fired up about the project, but it's been long enough that I want to see it done. I want to see it finished. I want to see it out there in the world. And... I am looking forward to getting to that stage with it. And just for brief context, Poison Tree is a campaign that the three of us are working on for Pelgrane Press. And now on to our main topic for today, the Dunwich Horror. I think this is one of the foundational tales of the Cthulhu Mythos. It came about fairly early in Lovecraft's great burst of creativity that followed him leaving New York and returning to Providence. It came shortly after things like The Call of Cthulhu. And it sets out a lot of the groundwork for the Cthulhu mythos. It establishes a lot of the tropes that we still see to this day. We'll discuss its various merits or, or lack thereof as we go along. But I, I don't think it's unfair to say that it's one of the most important tales in his canon. Yeah, very much for that reason, Mike and I decided that it should be in the Investigator Handbook. We were previously, the Call of Cthulhu had been in the Keeper rulebook, and it seemed a wise decision to put that story into the Investigator Handbook because it 
is, well, we'll discuss this in the show, but it's one of Lovecraft's stories which perhaps emulates the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game more than most of his others. Lovecraft wrote The Dunwich Horror in September of 1928, early in the period which he produced most of his major works. It was first published in Weird Tales in April of 29, netting Lovecraft $240. This was his largest payment to date at that stage. And this is a pretty significant amount of money. Mm, oh yeah. And I think you scaled it up for today's yeah, money, Scott. I ran it through uh, an inflation calculator. And it translates to about $3,500. This is a 17,000-word short story, or just over 17,000 words. So it's approximately 50 cents a word, which is a pretty damn good rate. Worth every cent. Lovecraft created Dunwich after visiting Edith Miniter in Wilburham, located in south-central Massachusetts. He was apparently inspired by the geography of north-central Massachusetts as well. Yeah, and it's not just the geography, it's the folklore. He brought in one particular element of, of folklore, which we'll dig into a fair bit during the story, which is this whole idea of whippoorwills being psychopomps. And whippoorwills is such a great name. I mean, that's mm. the only place I've encountered it. It's a bird. It's called a whippoorwill. I mean, it just sounds do, do, such do, an evocative name. Do you know why it's called a whippoorwill? No, I don't. Because... Because it steals your soul. <laughs> okay, sorry. Can, can you give me your reasoning there, Paul? Because uh, it whips away your will. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I, I, I like that. No, it's, it's an emulation of the sound its cry makes. It sounds a little bit like whippoorwill. A whippoorwill, a whippoorwill. <laughs> In the jungle, the mighty jungle. You know, of North Massachusetts. Of North Massachusetts. <laughs> the Waitley sleep tonight. Yeah. <clears throat> now, this is one thing that I found a little bit surprising. I'd always referred to it as Dunwich. That's how it's pronounced in the, the the 1970s film and every other version of media that I've seen regarding this. The real Dunwich has a very different pronunciation. It is Dunwich. Well, you've been there, right, yeah. Matt? Yeah. yeah, I've walked around the place for doing uh, doing research for one of my scenarios in Nameless Horrors. And, and where is it? It's in Suffolk, all on the Suffolk coast, or the rest of it being out to sea. But what's left of it is on the Suffolk coastline. But you talk about the pronunciation of the name there. I mean, this is something we tend to see when American place names are based on English ones, that they adopt very different pronunciations. So, for example, we've got uh, Greenwich in London, and there's Greenwich in Massachusetts, I think it is, or is it Connecticut? It's one of the two. It's Greenwich and, Village in New York as well, isn't it? Yeah, but that is pronounced Greenwich, but the one in New England is pronounced Greenwich. Hmm. It's different emphases, different pronunciations, and it sort of makes sense that as you know, different people get hold of a word, that it, it evolves. And Lovecraft may have got hold of this place name from Arthur Mackin, because Mackin was one of Lovecraft's favourite writers, he was a contemporary of Lovecraft, and he did write a short novel or a novella called The Terror, in which uh, he does make passing mention of Dunwich uh, in England. And it's, it doesn't play a major part in the story, but it gets a few mentions. I heard that a man living in Dunwich saw it one night like a black cloud with sparks of fire in it floating over the tops of the trees by Dunwich Common. What he's describing there is, isn't... Like the smoke monster from Lost. I think it's something far more mundane in the story, but I can sort of see how that image and tied with the place name of Dunwich might have just planted a little seed in Lovecraft's mind. The start of that reading makes me just think somebody should write a limerick. So this is a challenge to our listeners to uh, come up with. There was a young man from Dunwich. I don't oh, have the rest. 
This is your job. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> as a yeah. challenge. It, it is there as an exercise for the listener. The influence of Arthur Macken is strong. The great god Pan is mentioned as an influence by many critics, but then as you read the Dunwich Horror, you're like, oh, actually Lovecraft kind of preempts them and actually puts the reference in the text. He says, Inbreeding, Armitage muttered half aloud to himself. Great god, what simpletons. Show them Arthur Macken's great god Pan and they'll think it a common Dunwich scandal. <laughs> And there are a lot of similarities between the Dunwich Horror and the Great God Pan. Uh, the Great God Pan starts out as a wonderful piece of mad science with a bit of elective brain surgery carried out on a young woman to increase her perceptions and allow her to see this god that's normally beyond human perceptions, the Great God Pan. It all goes horribly wrong, and she is impregnated by the god and gives birth to this hybrid offspring who's female in the story and grows up to be a some strange malevolent force in very different ways than Wilbur Waitley but you can certainly see how a lot of the groundwork there reappears in the Dunwich Horror. And also Arthur Macken's story The White People provided a number of terms in this story such as Aklo and the Vorish sign, Aklo being the strange language. I saw the terrible vor again on everything for though the sky was brighter the ring of wild hills all around was still dark and the hanging woods looked dark and dreadful, and the strange rocks were as grey as ever. That's a lot of imagery we might see again very soon. Other possible influences include invisible monsters in Guy de Maupassant's The Hauler and Ambrose Bierce's The Damned Thing. The Hauler? Isn't that an episode in Star Trek? Isn't that that monster? Yeah. It is. I, I, th is I, think it? It, I think it's where they took the name from, yeah. Marvellous. The Hauler was probably an influence of the Call of Cthulhu as well as the Dunwich Horror because it's this invisible monster that sort of broadcasts bad thoughts and dreams and stuff. If only Spock were there to mind meld with it. Now let's take a look at the actual story of the Dunwich Horror. We open up with a quotation. Um, Charles Lamb's Witches and Other Night Fears. Yeah, I haven't read the entire essay. I mean, it's not a book. It's collected in one of his books, but uh. it is just an essay. I was kind of surprised because I was aware of Charles Lamb. I hadn't kind of pieced it together with this, but as a kid I did get given a copy of Tales from Shakespeare, uh, which was a book he did with his sister Mary, I think. Wait, <laughs> Which suddenly makes me think of the uh, the nursery rhyme. She did but, indeed have a little lamb. Yes. Um, Mary had a little lamb. Yeah, yeah, shub That one. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> but Tales from Shakespeare is basically Shakespeare's plays retold as children's stories. The archetypes are in us and eternal. These terrors are of older standing. They date beyond body, or without the body, they would have been the same. The actual quotation Lovecraft uses is a bit longer than that, but I, I just picked those particular lines out because they seem to speak to what the Dunwich Horror is about. I thought it was an interesting quotation for him to pick for this story because I guess it's pointing at the idea that the horrors we're about to encounter, I mean, not only older than mankind, but perhaps set some kind of imprint in us for the things we fear. I don't think he necessarily explores this in any of his stories, but the idea that some almost atavistic memory of the great old ones or their influence upon the earth may drive a lot of humanity's fears. 
Now, do you take it to mean some sort of human spirit that we remember life before we were human, before we adopted a human form or after death? And that these things are, are out there and that we have a race memory of them or some primordial memory of them? I think Lamb's original quotation was much more about a spiritual memory that predates birth. That's, you know, when the unborn child is ensouled. But I think Lovecraft was using it in a, a somewhat different context, being much more of a rationalist and uh, materialist. But, uh, yeah, I mean, regardless of the breadth of meaning, it's an interesting concept and... I still struggle to see exactly how it informs the story, but I think it sets some interesting ideas up. The bulk of the Dunwich horror takes place in and around Dunwich, unsurprisingly, a tiny village in a hilly area of rural Massachusetts surrounding the upper Miskatonic River. Lovecraft sets the scene with a lengthy description of the area. It's pretty much the whole first section. Um, the story's divided up into, what, ten individual parts uh, yeah i think it's yeah nine or ten chapters yeah yeah pretty much the whole first part is all just dedicated to setting the scene um, it's a landscape filled with unnerving geography dark history and inbred locals always a good start he paints a picture of a land in decay haunted by sinister folklore when a rise in the road brings the mountains in view above the deep woods the feeling of strange uneasiness is increased the summits are too rounded and symmetrical to give a sense of comfort and naturalness. And sometimes the sky silhouettes with especial clearness the queer circles of tall stone pillars with which most of them are crowned. Well, there's two really interesting things in that quotation for me. And the first is this idea of the hills being too rounded. Now, apparently Lovecraft was inspired very much by this visit we mentioned before to this friend, Mrs. Miniter. And he did comment in some of his correspondence at the time about these strangely rounded hills. I did wonder initially, when reading the story, whether this was something that he'd invented. I guess it's a quirk of geography, but it, I mean, it did get me thinking about why this might be the case. Because when I think of strangely rounded hills, I think of things like Silbury Hill near Avebury in Wiltshire in England. Silbury Hill is this small hill. Not that so, small. It was pretty big when we went to see it. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as hills go, I mean, it's, it's not huge. And it's surrounded by all these Neolithic sites. And what makes it so strangely rounded is the fact that it's not natural, it's man-made. So it's this earth covering over what's basically this great chalk pyramid. It did get me wondering whether in Dunwich that these hills might be artefacts from some ancient forgotten time. And the other thing Lovecraft mentions here, which is, I, I think, equally interesting, is the idea of these tall stone pillars atop the hills. Because this isn't something I necessarily associate with the Americas. The idea of stone circles and standing stones, you see these an awful lot, particularly across northern Europe and the old Celtic sites in the UK. I mean, there are parts of the UK that are just lousy with standing stones. I was kind of intrigued by his description of the table stones as well, these yeah. big flat stones that were on top of Sentinel Hill, a key feature in the story. The table stone very much lends itself to the idea of table like an altar for making sacrifices and so on. Or just having a big Thanksgiving dinner round. Well, indeed. Yeah. I did wonder what the origins of these might be, whether such things actually existed in the real world for a start. And, and so I did do a bit of looking around. And there's an article on the Atlas Obscura website which uh, talks a little bit about uh, what might have been Lovecraft's inspiration for this. 
which is a site called Burnt Hill near Heath, Massachusetts. It's speculation that Lovecraft was inspired by this because he never specifically mentioned it in his correspondence. There are photographs of it available, and we'll link to these from the show notes. It's not standing stones the way that I'd think of them in in a UK context. They're not big dolmen-type things. You talk about that table stone. It's It's a flat stone that's surrounded by smaller, jutting up pieces. There's been speculation about what the origin of these stones are. You know, some people thought they might be of Native American origin, and there certainly are Native American structures around New England. Again, they don't look like the kind of standing stones that we see in the UK. I mean, they're much more like cairns. Someone else thought that this might be a much more recent thing and maybe was erected as a boundary marker by a farmer. But whatever it is, it's an odd-looking thing if you take a look at the photographs and can see why it might have inspired this. This is an isolated area, sparsely populated with crumbling old shacks. Lovecraft notes that it is possible to pass through Dunwich without even realising one has done so. And maybe this is a good thing. A bit like when I pass through Slough on the M4. (laughs) Uh, Outsiders visit Dunwich as seldom as possible. And since a certain season of horror, all the signboards pointing toward it have been taken down. The scenery, judged by any ordinary aesthetic canon, is more than commonly beautiful, yet there is no influx of artists or summer tourists. Two centuries ago, when talk of witch blood, Satan worship, and strange forest presences were not laughed at, it was the custom to give reasons for avoiding the locality. In our sensible age... Since the Dunwich Horror of 1928 was hushed up by those who had the town's and the world's welfare at heart, people shun it without knowing exactly why. I think that reminds me of one of the illustrations right at the front of the Dunwich source book this is. Um, has a signpost that's saying, Arkham this way, Aylesbury this way, and then fallen down in the grass, Dunwich. And I love some of the descriptions that he talks about as he passes by. There are people stood in doorways looking over, but he doesn't like to catch their eye or look at them as if there's some malevolent association with them. You know, you don't want to hang around here. And that you might pass through it and then learn afterwards that, oh, you passed through Dunwich. Oh, yeah, you didn't want to stop <laughs> there, mate. No. It's also that they're stood in the fields as well. So they're just these isolated figures dotted around here and then, never in groups, but just individually stood staring seems very reminiscent of deliverance the Mm. 1970s film you know with these backwater places with these locals who are not like people we know they're got a dangerous side to them and then this whole idea of inbred locals i noticed this time lovecraft isn't aiming his dislike towards people of another race this is just of white people that live in massachusetts that are so inbred and and he uses this term decayed So he talks about these families of Waitleys and bishops who are, you know, of good blood, of good stock, but there are these decayed branches of them. I just found that such an evocative term. It was the first time I've come across that term applied to people. Yeah, because he uses the word degenerate as well, which is something we see far more in Lovecraft. But yeah, I mean, decayed is pretty much a synonym of degenerate in this particular context. In the American South, I mean, a lot of the stereotypes there seem to come about because 
people got infections of hookworm, which caused brain damage and caused changes in facial expression. So that classic slack-jawed look is, is actually caused by parasitic infections. You say it's Lovecraft not being xenophobic. I agree with that, but it's still very much his fear of the other. Whereas before we've seen his fears directed at people who are foreign or speak a different language or have a different skin tone than him or come from a different country. This time, I think we're seeing the same kind of dislike, but in a much more classist context, that it is still fundamentally the same kind of revulsion. These people aren't like me, therefore they're bad, and this is how I'm going to portray them as being bad. They're the unwashed, uneducated masses. And the word decayed seems to link to me with vegetation. I don't know, I think of rotting wood. That's the image that comes to mind. Like a rotting branch of the family tree. There's one thing in regards to the description of the local area as well that reminded me of The Colour Out of Space, which came out slightly before this. The Devil's Hopyard pretty much sounds like an area where a colour's landed. Yeah, though interestingly, The Devil's Hopyard is a real place. It's not in Massachusetts, it's in Connecticut. And I guess Lovecraft was inspired by this. It's a national park. It's not quite a blasted heath, but apparently... The landscape is a bit weird, that it's very rocky. The rocks are oddly pitted and lots of holes in them. It's, it's fairly barren of vegetation. Yeah, it just struck me as being that a lot of the description he used was, hang on a minute, I'm sure I've read this somewhere before. And there was another word that I don't really associate as a Lovecraftian word, but armidurus, which I had to look up, which was a descriptor oh, applied to people yeah. um, who were very worthy and upstanding people. Well, and te- technically, I, mean, I think it means that you're entitled to bear a coat of arms. Yeah, worthy of a coat of arms. So arm, armidurus. Um, armitage. Which, well, oh, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's a good point. I yeah. hadn't thought of that. Armitage. Yes. In the same story, we later encounter the very worthy Professor Armitage. Good link. The folklore doesn't end there, though. Lovecraft also introduces us to a local legend which echoes through the rest of the tale. Then, too, the natives are mortally afraid of the numerous whippoorwills which grow vocal on warm nights. It is vowed that the birds are psychopomps, lying in wait for the souls of the dying, and that they time their eerie cries in unison with the sufferer's struggling breath. If they can catch the fleeing soul when it leaves the body, they instantly flutter away, chittering in demoniac laughter. But if they fail... They subside gradually into a disappointed silence. He's talking about the chickens in my back garden. So your chickens are psychopomps, are they? They pretty much echo most of that behaviour. <laughs> I mean, do they steal souls every night, Matt? Well, well, they jump at me whenever I carry a can of corn in there. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, that's clearly the same thing. <laughs> but, I mean, let's stick into this idea of a psychopomp, because... The way that Lovecraft talks about these things being psychopomps in the stories doesn't quite, for me, jibe with the idea of what a psychopomp is. For anyone who's not familiar with the term, a psychopomp is an entity that carries the souls of the dead to the afterlife. It could be the Grim Reaper, it could be Charon, the boatman taking souls across the river Styx. It is an entity that is responsible for herding the souls of the dying and taking them to where they're supposed to be. But the whippoorwills, the way they're described in this, don't seem to be quite that thing. That they're attracted to the souls of the dying, or they're attracted certainly to the dying. But it seems to be a much more important thing that you don't let them catch your soul. 
Well, it seems important to the Waitleys. Does it seem important to other people? Because Wilbur Waitley and his grandfather, they don't want to be caught by these birds. So maybe actually it's a good thing to be caught by the birds. Maybe, you know, you go to the good place. But Wilbur and his grandfather don't want to go there. That's kind of what occurred to me. Maybe it means Does they that... can't use the resurrection spell and uh, raise them back up again afterwards, just in case. Yeah, but actually, odd. No, it does say the natives are mortally afraid of the numerous yeah. whippoorwills, so that doesn't imply that it is a bad thing to be caught by them. Oh, but it might mean they're afraid of the fact they're gathered around because it means, oh shit, they're here for me, I'm going to die soon, ha! Huh? That yeah. might be what they're worried about. For me, it seemed to be almost an indication that the whippoorwills might devour the souls of the dead, feed upon them. I think that's even mentioned in passing somewhere that they catch them like moths. That seems to be something altogether more sinister than a psychopomp. Apparently, this does actually come out of Native American folklore, Algonquin folklore. According to our good friend Brett Kramer on his Sentinel Hill Press website, he talks a little bit about this. And he says that the Algonquin people considered its cry as an omen of death. And the Mohegan people connected them with the Mackiewisag, a native variant of little people. So these do seem like, yeah, otherworldly and rather sinister figures. Amidst the strangeness, we meet the Waitley clan, a weird lot who live in a crumbling farmhouse on a hillside some four miles from Dunwich itself. The house is filled with unwholesome, worm-eaten books, and the patriarch of the family, Wizard Waitley, is reputed to be a black magician. I thought the house sounded wonderful. It's full of exactly the kind of books I want. <laughs> this is your ideal home, Matt. Yeah. Who would live in a home like this? Matt Me. Sanderson. <laughs> One thing I just wanted to pick up there was the pronunciation of the name. I listened to an audiobook reading this from an American narrator recently, and I also listened to the discussion of it from the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. They all pronounce the name as Watley. Mm, I noticed that. Yeah. So we've got Dunwich, Dunwich, Watley, Waitley. Let's call the whole thing off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've always pronounced it Waitley, and damn it, I'm going to carry on pronouncing it Waitley. Yeah. If you have an opinion on this, you can let us know on social media, and we'll try not to mock you too much. There's also another brief mention here I've got to give to the sheds of Dunwich folk. You now, where they're talking about, I think it's uh, Waitley's shed outside the house, and how bad it smells. And smell is such a, a big thing in this story. You get a lot of reference to bad smells. But apparently, Lovecraft says in the story, the sheds of Dunwich folk have never been remarkable for olfactory immaculateness. That's a nice piece of understatement. It is, isn't it? Yes. What? It's almost like saying vertically challenged or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, kind of politically correct term for it stinks. Yeah. Because Lovecraft was nothing if not politically correct. Absolutely. It was all about that. <laughs> when it came to sheds, anyway. It's an important topic. Lavinia Waitley, um, his daughter is a somewhat deformed albino woman. She gave birth to a son, Wilbur, back on the 2nd of February 1913, a date known to most as Candlemas, but which is observed under a different name in Dunwich. It's hinted that it's one of the dates of the Witch's Sabbath, but more entertainingly, I think it's also Groundhog Day, so maybe that's what they celebrate it as. Ah! <laughs> I, and also, as an aside, our good friend James Mullen was born then as well, so I mean, clearly he is the second coming of Wilbur Waitley. I mean, this does explain an awful lot, James, if you're listening, so, yeah. Your secret is out. You mean he's nine foot tall and looks like a goat? <laughs> <laughs> Wilbur's father is unknown, but Wizard Waitley promises the folks at the general store that Someday you folks will hear a child of Lavinia's a-calling its father's name on the top of Sentinel Hill! 
So was was Old Man Waitley one of the Wurzels? I <laughs> <laughs> a Scottish Wurzel, apparently. He's moved around a lot. He has. <laughs> Let's hope he didn't visit Birmingham. That's all I can. All I'm saying. Right. Following Wilbur's birth, the Waitleys renovate their farm, opening up the top story and boarding its windows. Visitors occasionally note movement or something like the sound of the tide coming from above. Yeah, later in the book it's described as a, a lapping sound. Lovecraft is really good at this sometimes, just finding the right word that is just disquieting in that context. And the idea that you're sitting in this farmhouse and it's, you hear the creaking and groaning and possibly the shifting of something moving up above. And then there's a lapping sound. The right word for the wrong thing. Yeah. <laughs> Out of all the nasty things in the story, that's one of the things that's, that I find most shuddersome. We kind of glanced past it as well, but that name Sentinel Hill, that's a really evocative name. Uh, considering the context of what happens there, I think it's a really good piece of place naming. Again, Lovecraft does seem to have taken inspiration from real life there. He appears to have taken the name from a place in Athol, which he visited, called Sentinel Elm Farm. The whole idea of Sentinel Hill, I mean, whether this is, you know, a hill upon which a sentinel waits watching for something, a guardian, perhaps the guardian between worlds, this is the place where the breach between worlds will happen, or maybe even the implication that the hill itself is some kind of sentinel. Well, there's all the noises coming from under the hills, so it could be watching and waiting for something to emerge. Yeah. There is, a, again, a line very similar from The Call of Cthulhu, where it says about the dark black masses and forces drawn up from the ground. Yeah, I mean, this is something that Lovecraft mentions an awful lot in this story, these strange subterranean noises that happen all around Dunwich. And again, this is something that he took inspiration from the real world for. What? He took inspiration from the real world, from strange underground weird noises. Yes. Because I thought that was really strange. It's one of those things that when you read the story again, you're like, well, to me anyway, I was like, oh, I've totally forgotten about these weird underground noises. No, apparently he was inspired by a place called Moodus in Connecticut, which is plagued by what's referred to as micro-earthquakes. And these make strange rumbling and cracking sounds without really shaking the earth too much. This apparently led to certain cults amongst the Algonquin people actually setting up uh, shrines there, believing that this was the home of a god, and a god was making all these strange underground noises. You sure they weren't just fracking? <laughs> yeah, I think there may be a different kind of existential threat to the world involved there, but yeah, much the same effect. And this whole story just takes me back to my childhood so much. The old crumbling farmhouse and the weird old sheds outside full of miscellaneous crap... We've heard a little bit of Old Man Waitley, thanks Matt, a moment ago, but these unintelligible <laughs> yokel accents, I think this is one of the reasons I love this story so much. It just feels uh, so familiar to me. <laughs> uh, so, so tell us about your twin brother, Paul. Yeah, I don't, we don't talk about him. We don't see him much either. <laughs> also, I was brought up listening to The Archers, a Radio 4 soap opera drama, and you know, I can just see a spoof of the Dunwich Horror because there's Lakey Hill in the Archers, which they always sort of go up when they've got troubles, and that could be like Sentinel Hill. And there's this mumbling, what is he, like in his 90s, old Joe Grundy, who I just imagine cast as uh, Old Man Waitley. 
<laughs> this is your next convention game, Paul, isn't it? It should, but I don't know how many gamers <laughs> actually listen to the archers who would get the references. But... Yeah, but the half dozen you can find will love the fuck out of this game. Yeah, I've wanted to do this for like several decades, so yeah, definitely. <laughs> Wizard Waitley also buys large quantities of cattle, although the size of his herd never seems to increase. He pays for them with ancient gold coins. Ah, so he's part deep one. Okay. To add to the weirdness, both Lavinia and Old Man Waitley are often seen covered with small lesions like bite marks. Now that reminds me a lot of that film. Is it Grace? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. She's teething. <laughs> yes, Grace is a nice little horror film from 10 or 15 years ago where a woman gives birth to a vampire baby that, that suckles on blood. This is very much the same thing here. This is one of these things that Lovecraft doesn't spell out entirely in this story, but later on it does seem to perhaps hint that whatever it is in the attic is feeding on them. But also, there's these gold coins. Mm. Yeah, Old Man Waitley has got. He's. I deep mean, on gold. Where there's muck, there's brass. But I mean, this is something else, right? Well, it could be D1 gold. I don't necessarily make the link with deep ones here, but it's just. Do we take it that it's really old wealth that's in the story in the H.P. Lovecraft literary podcast? Is it Robert Price or one of the others that makes the reference that maybe this is a deal with the devil and this is kind of mm. how he's got the money? I was but, approaching it as a motif that it seems to be whoever the bad people, bad guy, whatever, seem to be steeped in riches. Right. That, like like yes. as the deep ones have got shitloads of gold that they yeah. have that they bring up to the surface. The wizard obviously has a huge stockpile of it that seems to be never ending and no one ever finds. Love of money is the root of all evil and all that. Indeed. Yeah, and I guess it also ties in with this idea of Old Man Waitley being a wizard, that his magical powers have perhaps allowed him to find hidden caches of gold or you know, whatever it is. The source of this gold definitely seems to be unnatural. So in your next scenario, there's going to be an um, attract gold spell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too busy researching that one in real life. <laughs> Wilbur is a strange little boy. No not, shit. Not so little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's true. He, he does grow fast, does that little Wilbur. Dogs hate him instinctively, and he carries a pistol to protect himself from them. A neighbour spots him running naked atop Sentinel Hill, although he may have some kind of fringed belt and a pair of dark trunks or trousers on. After this, Wilbur takes special care with his clothing, revealing nothing of what lies beneath. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is all pretty weird. He is a stranger, is, is Wilbur, and he's described in some detail by Lovecraft. The boy grows unnaturally quickly, yeah, talk about growth spurt, developing faculties far ahead of his years. By the time he's ten, he appears to be an adult, complete with a beard. His features and behaviour provoke concern. The strangeness did not reside in what he said or even in the simple idioms he used, but seemed vaguely linked with his intonation or with the internal organs that produced the spoken sounds. His facial aspect, too, was remarkable for its maturity, for though he shared his mother's and grandfather's chinlessness, his firm and precociously shaped nose united with the expression of his large, dark, almost Latin eyes to give him an air of quasi-adulthood, and well-nigh preternatural intelligence. He was, however, exceedingly ugly, despite his appearance of brilliancy, there being something almost goatish or animalistic about his thick lips, large, poured, yellowish skin, coarse, crinkly hair, and oddly elongated ears. 
Sometimes Lovecraft comes up with a turn of phrase. I mean, we've commented on things like penguin fringed abyss before, but sometimes he comes up with a turn of phrase that just makes me stop reading and go, what the fuck? And it's that precociously shaped nose. That is just such a, a wonderfully odd turn of phrase. Yeah, that, that nose of his is a bit precocious, isn't it? But one of the things that Lovecraft does here which I like, it's something I keep struggling with sometimes in Call of Cthulhu scenarios, is how weird to make things up front. Because almost from the get-go, it's pretty damn obvious that Wilbur Waitley isn't human. He's growing too fast. His features, while largely human, have got things about them which really aren't. His voice isn't really human. There's that hint of what might lie underneath his clothing. Yeah, sometimes as a keeper, I think if I make too much of this stuff obvious ahead of time, people are immediately going to jump to conclusions and things are going to happen too quickly. And what Lovecraft does in this and a number of his other stories is he just sort of presents all that stuff up front and relies on the fact that people will just rationalise things away. But remember, he's talking to the reader. We're reading the written word. We can't say, oh, well, I go up and punch him in the face. Going back to our violence episode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but we can't react to this. I think it's absolutely clear to the reader that Wilbur Waitley is monstrous. You know, he's, mm. he's not human. There's things that are very wrong going on here. That's absolutely explicit. But it's kind of clear to us also as the reader that it's somewhat disguised to the other people in the story. Well, no, because, I mean, as we get on later in the story, I mean, the people around the area of Dunwich all seem very happy with the fact that he's not really human. Even Armitage doesn't really react too adversely to him obviously there's a disagreement between the two but it's not like he comes into his office and goes oh my god you're a monster they have a conversation i wonder how much of this we can use in our call of cthulhu stories it's something that we'll get to i think when we talk about the gaming aspects of it but i think it's a really interesting thing to put so much of this up front I think what you just said, Scott, that you can actually give out more information, particularly early on in a scenario when you're introducing some NPC and the weirdness hasn't been exposed yet, but you can really strongly imply that this NPC is wrong, is there's something mm. wrong about him. And the player characters, if they haven't really gone over the top with combating the mythos in that story yet, I think they tend to hold back, the players do. They tend to sort of think, OK, we've clocked that he's not right but it's not really acceptable right now for us to jump up and rip his shirt open in the restaurant. And also, if they're wrong about that, or if the consequences of killing the character aren't going to be quite as drastic as we'll see what happens with Wilbur later on in the story, then this guy looks a bit weird, he talks a bit strangely, you can tell there's something off about him. If you pull out your gun and shoot him, still going to get done for murder. I think to me it's a bit like the reader, me, reading the story, and the, the characters in the story... As a player, I might register that the NPC is something wrong, but as a player also, I feel my player character, my investigator, would think it was weird, but wouldn't necessarily act against it. I guess if you encounter someone like Wilbur Waitley in real life, you would just automatically put a lot of it down to birth defects, inbreeding, whatever. Mm. And it would be very easy to rationalise a lot of these things away. Wilbur's grandfather tutors him, teaching him all manner of forbidden lore. I wish I had a grandfather like that. <laughs> Around the time Wilbur turns ten, however, Wizard Waitley takes ill, and the whippoorwills gather. Before he dies, the old man offers his grandson some sage deathbed advice. Open up the gates to Yogg-Sothoth, with the long chant that you'll find on page 751 of the complete edition. 
and then put a match to the prison. Fire from Earth can't burn it now. With this, we learn a little more about Wilbur's purpose. And also, it's interesting that Lovecraft starts drawing upon a lot of the lore that he's created elsewhere. So I think by this stage, he'd already written his History of the Necronomicon, that fairly short essay, where he spells out the different editions, the origins and the different changes the Necronomicon's been through. He's using that almost as a reference document for this story. So there's the idea that the Waitleys are in possession of this English-language translation, probably done by John Dee, that is obviously more readable but less complete than the Latin translation which was provided by... Um, Oldest woman is? Yes, I'm glad one of us remembers. Which in turn was a translation of the original Arabic written by Abdul al-Hazred. By this stage it's already gone through a number of potential translation errors. The closer he's getting back to the source, the more damage he can do with it. As Wizard Waitley dies, the hills rumble and the birds fall silent. Wilbur mutters that they didn't get him. Two years later, Lavinia disappears, never to be seen again. Locals speculate about matricide, but nothing is proved. Meanwhile, Wilbur moves his last belongings out of the farmhouse to an outbuilding and seals up the rest of the windows. Downsizing. He continues buying cattle with the same strange old coins. Oh, Lavinia is an interesting character. I mean, she's probably one of the best-developed female characters in Lovecraft. I mean, not that she's particularly well-developed, but considering her deformities and her inbred nature, Lovecraft speaks of her faculties and so on quite highly. She seems to be an intelligent woman and a strongly motivated one. But in the end, she seems to function as little other in the story than a vessel and then a meal i picked up on hp podcraft about the matricide i didn't really pick it up in the story i don't think it's mentioned specifically at this stage but later on that you know there's some mention of rumors or rumblings of matricide okay and the next year wilbur now almost eight feet tall starts corresponding with libraries around the world he's looking for a copy of the latin version of the necronomicon as translated by Olaus Wormius. And this leads Wilbur to the Miskatonic University, where we'll leave today's episode. Join us next time when we see some dramatic action as Wilbur makes a library use role. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, once again, we would like to thank all those wonderful, wonderful people who have given us money via Patreon. The money that you pledge keeps the podcast going. It allows us to pay for all our running costs and our time in actually putting this thing together. So thank you very much to each and every one of you. And we have new people to thank. Yes, starting off at the $1 level with our friend Edwin Nagy. Hi, hello there, Edwin. Hey, long time no see. Yeah, very generous of you, Edwin, and thank you very much. And thank you also to Ian Barr. Hey, thank you very much, Ian. Thank you very much, Ian. Moving up to the $3 level, first up to thank today is Gabe Harkins. So, thank you very much, Gabe. And thank you and cheers, Gabe. Thank you and cheers, Gabe. And also, thanks and cheers to David Gutierrez. Thank you very much, David. Thank you and cheers, David. Hey, cheers, David. And also, thank you and cheers to Andrew Hudson. Hey, cheers, Andrew. Cheers, Andrew. Now, recently on Patreon, I've added a few higher levels in for those that want to 
be extra generous. Um, so there are some $10 levels and $20 levels, and each one of these is unique and has got a special name. So we've got someone who's joined us at that level today. Indeed, yeah. Moving up from 5 to $10, Robin Hood Dial the Second is now the Eldritch Elder Thing. I wonder what the reception's like down in Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Robin Hood. Um, do we call you Robin or Robin Hood? You, you've you've met. Robin I have. Hood I had the pleasure second. of meeting him at Gen Con uh, in the summer. So, uh, so yes. So, do you, do you refer to him by his full name or just Robin? I think I'm sure Robin's fine. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Robin, and we hope you enjoy your new tentacular goodness. As if your name wasn't fantastic enough already. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> stay away from the shoggoths. Thanks, Robin. Techly Lee. Meanwhile, on social media... And I'm pleased to see that we've had a new iTunes review from the wonderfully named... The Bjorn Identity. In Sweden. Great podcast. This podcast has the feel of a good and intelligent chat between friends, even though the subject is Eldritch Horror. Immensely enjoyable. What else would he talk about other than Eldritch Horrors? I'm not entirely sure. Thank you very much. We deeply appreciate the review. And if any of the rest of you feel moved to give us a review, we would absolutely love that. The more reviews that get out there, the higher our ranking in places like iTunes gets and the more people actually find out about the podcast. And we've had some feedback on our recent episode about improvisation. From Justin B on G+. I find it helpful to have the players make a social skill roll before we start role-playing a scene and tell them, based on their role, this is going to end poorly. Let's see how it's going to end poorly. I, I love the fact that, you know, that's the default assumption. This sounds like someone who's used to playing with Matt. What? <laughs> <laughs> they make their roll and it turns out poor. Oh, my yes. right. God, you. Yeah, I was just going to say, well, the thought is more likely Scott. It's just, you know, whatever you're going to do, you're screwed. But, <laughs> yeah, there is that. Yeah, with me, it's you pick up the dice. Oh, well, that, that was just your doom. Essentially, random tables impose limits on what you are doing, which is also making the roll first and then explaining what happens. It helps combat the choice paralysis you mentioned in the podcast. This is a real thing to many people. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. That's a very good point. That that old truism that constraint is the mother of creativity, and there, yeah, there is a lot of truth to that. Yeah, some restaurants in the states, too many options on the menu for me. <laughs> I guess what he's getting at, though, though, is what's even worse than that would be if you went into a restaurant and there weren't a menu, and they just said you can have anything you want. Filet mignon, done. So the menu for you, Matt, is like roll two d six. There's your option. <laughs> okay. Yeah, as long as it ain't fish, I'm fine. Seafood platter. <laughs> <laughs> With extra cucumber. Ugh. And we had some feedback on Discord from Linus Larson. With the announcement of the closure of Google+, we are now seeing more and more people moving over to our Discord server. You can find a link to that on blasphemoustomes.com. So if you want to come and join the conversation there, it's becoming really quite lively. Anyway, Linus says... The investigative nature of much Cthulhu and horror-related gaming makes improv tricky. It can be rewarding, but it's personally not my cup of tea. I've instead opted to use improvisational tools in the low-stakes parts of games that use established clue trails. Published campaigns can be daunting, and so I try to memorise clues and their significance, but leave much of the rest be. Instead, I prepare prompts for improv and use them to generate names, mannerisms, and descriptors on the fly. 
If there are themes explicitly stated in the campaign, that will influence the selection of random prompts. What I think the core of this is, is that if you're running an investigative game, obviously the core structure of that is the clues. So you pull out the clues and you know think of the ways that you're going to present those to the players or what they mean, how they tie together. And the idea there is the rest of it is effectively window dressing. You can come up with that stuff on the fly. And yeah, I, I really appreciate this idea. And certainly, you know, this is very much the way that I run things myself normally. My memory isn't really that good for all these details. But my imagination works as well as ever, so yeah, I find it really easy to make stuff up. But, as Lena says there, that doesn't necessarily work well with the rigid structure of an investigative game. No, but I think that description that Linus gives is pretty much how I would play as well. You've got the structure of the scenario, but around that framework you can improvise. I don't know much about playing music, but that's, I kind of get when you improvise music, there's a structure that you mm. can improvise around. You don't just make up any old stuff. Normally, because I used to play in a jazz band mm. at school, one of the criteria was that you have certain passages which are in certain keys and therefore dictate what notes you can use. So as long as you stick to those selections of notes, you can do whatever the hell you want, just basically keep within those constraints. And maybe stretching it a bit, but almost a parallel with gaming in Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, actually, it's interesting. Uh, I think Ron Edwards used very much the same metaphor in Sorcerer, or certainly a lot of the Forge stuff, where he talked about the idea of the GM being like the bassist of the band, that you're keeping the tempo and basically giving the other players something to improvise around. Also, just further to the improvisation episode, I noticed just a picture on Twitter, I think from Evil Hat, they've got a book out about improvisation in gaming. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, which obviously we haven't read, but yeah, might be of interest to give a read. I don't know. Then let's wrap things up now with some final thoughts about uh, the first half of the Dunwich Horror. So I was pondering the story and Lovecraft. I might be making this observation and maybe other people have made it as well. And I'm going to draw a parallel between Lovecraft and Wilbur Waitley. If you strip out all of the supernatural, then what have we got? We've got a young man who is described as being ugly, is told he's ugly, who learns to talk and read at an early age, who has a strong interest in old books. His main mentor is his grandfather, Hmm. who dies when he's in early teenage. And his mother is also there, but has psychological problems and also dies when he's relatively young. Well, and also an absent father, because his father was institutionalised pretty Absolutely. much around the time he was born. Yeah, sorry, I missed the absent yeah. father bit, right? Yeah. So I can't help thinking that on some level, Lovecraft is is reflecting his own experience in this. Obviously, he's then dressing it up with lots of supernatural stuff, and it's a very different person and different characters, but... No, I, I completely agree. It's the, particularly is the thought that came to my mind when he mentioned about being ugly. And that there's almost that no chin aspect because uh, it was around most of his like his mouth and his smile that was one of the main complaints his aunt had about him, wasn't it? Yeah, that it, I mean, it's why any time you see him in a photograph and he's smiling, he keeps his mouth closed mm-hmm. because he was told that showing his teeth and a smile made him look ugly. I wonder about this. I think that's a very astute observation. I wonder whether it's one of these things where, I'm sure we've all done it at some stage, it's something I talked about a little while back with Blackwater Creek, where I didn't realise what I was writing about until after I'd written it. 
Mm. And it could be that Lovecraft drew all these elements together, wrote about them in the story, created Wilbur Waitley. Yeah, of course he's drawing upon himself and his experiences to do this, but that might not have been a conscious process. No, perhaps not. It'd be interesting to see, perhaps somebody might know in his letters, if he talks about that. Hmm. Lovecraft did talk very much about the Dunwich Horror in his letters, and he talked about identifying with one of the characters, but the character he identified with is Henry Armitage, who we'll, we'll encounter in the next episode. Well, until then, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes. Dot com. Mm-hmm.